Introduction Part 3 of Commentary on the Gospel of John, Book 12, by Cyril of Alexandria. Translated by Reverend Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 8.9. When Pilate therefore heard this saying, he was the more afraid, and he entered into the palace again, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. The malicious design of the Jews had a result they little expected, for they wished to pile up the indictment against Christ by saying that he had ventured to sin against the person of God himself. But the weighty character of the accusation itself increased Pilate's caution, and he was the more oppressed with alarm, and more careful concerning Christ than before, and questioned him the more particularly, what he was, and whence he came, not disbelieving, as I think, that though he was a man, he might be also the Son of God. This idea and belief of his was not derived from holy writ, but the mistaken notions of the Greeks, for Greek fables call many men demigods and sons of gods. The Romans, too, who in such matters were still more superstitious, gave the name of God to the more distinguished of their own monarchs, and set up altars to them, and allotted them shrines, and put them on pedestals. Therefore Pilate was more earnest and anxious than before, in his inquiry who Christ was, and whence he came. But he, the scripture saith, answered him not a word, remembering, I suppose, what he himself had said unto him, Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. And how could Pilate, a worshipper of idols, have hearkened to the voice of the Saviour when he said that he was truth and the child of truth? And how could he at all have received and honoured the name of truth, who at once ridiculed it, and said, What is truth? because he still worshipped false gods, and was buried in the darkness of their deceitfulness. 10. Pilate therefore saith unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Pilate thought this silence the silence of a madman. Therefore he stretches over him, as it were, the wand of his official power, and thought that he could induce him by fear, against his will, to return a fruitless answer. For he says that nothing could hinder his inclining whichever way he chose, either to punish him or to take compassion upon him, and that there was nothing to turn him aside, to give a verdict against his will, with whom alone rested the fate of the accused, he rebukes him, therefore, as though he felt himself insulted by untimely silence, and, so far as that went, his indignation were whetted against him. For he perceived not at all the hidden meaning of Christ's silence. Observe here the accurate fulfillment of that which was foretold by the voice of the prophet. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. Thus saith the blessed Isaiah, and the psalmist also, assuming the person of Christ, saith in the Spirit, I have kept my mouth with a bridle, 
while the wicked congregated themselves before me. I was dumb and humbled myself, and kept silence from good words. By good words curses must be understood, for it is usual with Holy Scripture to speak euphemistically on such occasions, when reference is made to the person of God himself. 11. Jesus answered him, Thou wouldest have no power against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivereth me unto thee hath greater sin. He makes no clearer revelation of what he was, or whence he came, or who was his father. Nor, indeed, does he suffer us to waste the word of revelation, by giving it to ears that are estranged, saying, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before the swine. When, then, Pilate was parading before him his official power, and, in his folly, alleging that he could wholly determine his fate according to his mere will and pleasure, he very appropriately meets him with a declaration of his own power and might, and stops him short, as it were, as he were vaunting himself with vain and empty boasting against the glory of God. For, in truth, it were no small calamity that any should suppose that Christ could be dragged, against his will, to suffer insult, and that the malice of the Jews vanquished him, who was truly God, and proclaimed sovereign of the universe by the holy and inspired writings. He has, therefore, removed this stumbling-block from our path, and cuts up, as it were, such an error by the roots, by the words, Except it were given thee from above. And when he says that power was given to Pilate from above, he does not mean that God the Father inflicted crucifixion upon his own Son against his will, but that the only begotten himself gave himself to suffer for us, and that the Father suffered the fulfillment of the mystery in him. It is, then, plainly the consent and approval of the Father that is here said to have been given, and the pleasure of the Son is also clearly signified. For no doubt the force of numbers could never have overcome the power of the Savior. But we may easily see this from the numerous plots they laid against him, which resulted in nothing but their being convicted of having made an insolent attempt. They, indeed, desired to seize him, as the evangelist says. But he, going through the midst of them, went his way, and so passed by. He says, so passed by, meaning, not cautiously, or with bated breath, or practicing the maneuvers that men do who wish to escape, but with his usual step, free from all alarm. For he hid himself by his divine and ineffable might, and then eluded the sight of his would-be murderers. For he did not wish as yet to die, nor did he suffer the passions of his persecutors to determine, as it were, without his consent, the hour of his peril. Therefore he says, that by his own command, and the consent of God the Father, power was given unto Pilate, so that he was enabled to accomplish the deeds which he did, in fact, venture to perform. 
for the nature of the Most High God is wholly invincible, and cannot be subdued by anything that exists, for in him the power of universal dominion of necessity exists. He accuses of the greater sin, that is, of greater sin against himself, the traitor that brought him to Pilate, and with great reason. For he was, as it were, the source from which the impious crime against him sprang, and also the gate through which it passed, while the judge was but the minister to the crimes of others, and so showed himself, by his ill-timed cowardice, a partaker in the iniquity of the Jews. Who, then, is the traitor, and to whom is the prime authorship of the charges to be referred? Surely, to that most venal disciple, or rather traitor and destroyer of his own soul, and besides him the crowd of the rulers and the people of the Jews. And though Christ attributes to them the greater part of the blame, he does not acquit Pilate wholly of complicity in guilt. 12. Upon this Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou release this man, thou art not Caesar's friend. Every one that maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. The exclamation of the Jews afflicts Pilate with panic, and sharpens the keenness of his caution, and makes him pause before putting him to death. For they shouted out, that that very prisoner had made himself the son of God, whom Pilate had been most anxious to release from all danger, and to acquit of every false accusation, having this fear at heart. The Israelites saw this, and returned to their original falsehood, saying that Jesus had courted the people, and transgressed against Caesar's power, and, so far as his power went, had waged war against the rule of Rome for he had made himself a king. See how laborious and passionate was the attempt of his accusers against him. For, first of all, they cried out with one accord, miserable wretches that they were, and asserted that he had ventured to assail Caesar's power. But when they did not meet with much success, Christ declaring that his kingdom was not an earthly kingdom, they alleged, even unto Pilate, who sat in a Roman tribunal, his offense against God himself, saying, He made himself the Son of God. For the villains thought that they could thereby spur Pilate to heedless wrath, and lend him courage to doom the Saviour to death, making his action a mark of his piety towards God. But when their malicious attempt proved unavailing, they once more recurred to the charge they had presumed to make at first, declaring that he had ventured to assail the rule of Caesar, and violently accusing the judge of taking up arms against Caesar's majesty, if he did not consent to pass the sentence of fitting condemnation upon him who, as they alleged, had spoken against Caesar, by daring to take upon himself, in any shape, the title of king. Though Caesar did not claim an empire in the heavens, such as that of which Christ was, indeed, the Lord, but an earthly and inferior empire, which itself had its root in the power of Christ. For through him kings reign, according to the scripture, and monarchs rule over the earth. 
Therefore these most impious men bridled not their tongues, but in their excessive enmity to God attacked the glory of the Saviour. Them did the blessed prophet Isaiah justly rebuke, saying, But draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore, against whom do ye sport yourselves, against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue. Are ye not children of perdition, a lawless seed? For it was not against any mere man that they made their outcry, and spoke out with unbridled tongues, and practised every sort of calumny, but against their own Lord himself, who ruleth over all with the Father. Therefore rightly did they become, and are in truth, children of perdition, and a lawless seed. 13.14. When Pilate therefore heard this saying, he brought Jesus out, and sat down on the judgment seat, at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabatha. Now it was the preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. The evangelist, when he thus speaks, throws the whole burden, as it were, of the charge of shedding Christ's blood upon the Jews. For he now clearly says that Pilate was well nigh overcome against his will by their opposition, so that he put away the thought of justice, and paid little heed to the consequence. And therefore he was dragged down to do the will of Christ's murderers, though he had often expressly told them that Jesus had been found guilty of no fault at all, and it is this which will make him subject to the worst of penalties. For by preferring the pleasure of a mob to honoring the just, and giving over a guiltless man to the frenzy of the Jews, he will be convicted out of his own mouth of impiety. He ascends, therefore, to his usual judgment seat, as about to pronounce sentence of death against Christ. The inspired evangelist is induced to signify to our prophet the day and hour, because of the resurrection itself, and his three days sojourn among the departed, that the truth of our Lord's saying to the Jews might appear. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so also shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Roman ruler on his judgment seat, pointing to Jesus, says, Behold your king. Either he was jesting with the multitude, and was granting, with his scornful smile, the innocent blood to those who thirsted for it without a cause. Or, perhaps, he was casting in the teeth of the savage Jews the reproach that they endured to see in such evil plight against him, whom they themselves named and asserted to be king of Israel. 15. They therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? They reiterate their old cry with the same fury, and desisted not from their lust for blood, and were not softened at all by the insults he had endured, nor inclined to clemency by the outrages inflicted upon him, but were rather goaded to a greater pitch of fury, and entreat that he who had raised the dead in their midst, 
and shown himself the worker of such marvels, should be crucified. At which Pilate was sore amazed, seeing that they declared with such vehemence that he, who had acquired such eminence among them as to be deemed the Son of God and King, was not merely worthy of death, but that he deserved so cruelly fate, for crucifixion is the worst of deaths. The judge, therefore, makes their outcry a charge and reproach against them, that they should be desirous that he should be crucified, who had excited so great admiration by deeds which were so preeminent as to transcend anything on earth. For what is there that is equal to what does not fall short of the Son of God and King? 15. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Hereupon the well-beloved Israel spurned his God, and started aside from his allegiance, and, as Moses said, abandoned the God that was his father, and remembered not the Lord his helper. For see how he turned his eyes upon an harlot, according to the scripture, refused to be ashamed, disowned his own glory, and denied his Lord. Of this very charge God accused Israel of old, speaking by the mouth of Jeremiah. For pass over the isles of Chittim, and send unto Kedar, and see whether the nations change their gods, who are yet no gods. But my people have changed their glory. And again, The heavens were astonished thereat, and were horribly afraid, saith the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that hold no water. For while other nations throughout the whole world clung fast to the deceitfulness of their idols, and steadfastly adhered to the gods whom they so deemed, and did not readily undergo a change of faith, nor easily alter their form of worship, the Israelites started aside, and joined themselves to the empire of Caesar, and cast off the rule of God. Therefore, very justly, were they given over into Caesar's hands, and having at first welcomed his rule, afterwards brought themselves to grievous ruin, and underwent expulsion from their country, and the sufferings of war, and those irremediable calamities that befell them. Observe, too, here the minuteness of the writer, for he does not say that the people started the impious cry, but rather their rulers. For he says, the chief priest cried out, everywhere pointing out that it was through their submissively following their leaders that the multitude was carried down the precipice and fell into the abyss of perdition. The chief priests incurred the penalty, not merely as losing their own souls, but also as having been leaders and responsible guides of the people subject unto them in the fatal shedding of blood. Just as also the prophet rebuked them, saying, because ye have been a snare unto the watch-tower, and as a net stretched out upon Tabor, which they who catch the prey have spread. The prophet here means by the watch-tower the multitude, who were subject unto them, who were arrayed, as it were, to observe the conduct of their rulers, and to conform their own to it. 
and therefore the leading men of the people are called watchmen in holy writ. The chief priests themselves, then, were a snare and a net unto the watchtower, for they both started this denial, and also induced all the rest to cry, We have no king but Caesar. These miserable men presumed, so to say, though God the Father, by the mouth of the prophet, predicted the coming of the Saviour, and cried out, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold thy king cometh unto thee, he is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. These men, who had once brought Jesus into Jerusalem riding upon an ass, and honoured him as a god with blind praises, with one accord, for they cried, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now make an outcry against him, accusing him only of attacking the Roman rule, and shaking off, as it were, the yoke of the kingdom of God from their necks. For this was the plain meaning of the cry, We have no king but Caesar. But we shall find that then, too, it was the people that raised the shout for the Saviour Christ and that it was the chief priest who presumed in their madness to make this exclamation, just as the others had proceeded from them. 16. Then therefore he delivered him unto them to be crucified. Pilate henceforward permits the Jews, in their unbridled resentment, to run to all lengths in lawlessness, and, divesting himself of the power due unto a judge, suffers their uncontrolled passions at length to take their course unreproved, in allowing them to crucify one who was wholly guiltless, and who received this monstrous condemnation merely because he said he was the Son of God. One must lay the whole guilt of the impious crime at the door of the Jews, and rightly and justly, I think, accuse them of being the prime movers in the act, for with them originated this impiety against Christ. Yet we cannot acquit Pilate of complicity in their iniquity, for he shared their responsibility, inasmuch as when he might have delivered and rescued him from the madness of his murderers, he did not merely refrain from releasing him, but even gave him up to them for the very purpose that they might crucify him. 16, 17, 18. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing the cross for himself, unto the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and with him two others, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. They lead away, then, to death, the author of life. And for our sakes was this done for by the power and incomprehensible providence of God, Christ's death resulted in an unexpected reversal of things. For his suffering was prepared as a snare for the power of death, and the death of the Lord was the source of the renewal of mankind in incorruption and newness of life. Bearing the cross upon his shoulders, on which he was about to be crucified, he went forth. His doom was already fixed, and he had undergone, for our sakes, though innocent, the sentence of death, 
for in his own person he bore the sentence righteously pronounced against sinners by the law. For he became a curse for us, according to the scripture. For cursed is every one, it is said, that hangeth on a tree. And accursed are we all, for we are not able to fulfill the law of God. For in many things we all stumble, and very prone to sin is the nature of man. And since, too, the law of God says, Cursed is he which continueth not in all things that are written in the book of this law to do them. The curse, then, belongeth unto us, and not to others. For those against whom the transgression of the law may be charged, and who are very prone to err from its commandments, surely deserve chastisement. Therefore, he that knew no sin was accursed for our sakes, that he might deliver us from the old curse. For all-sufficient was the God who is above all, so dying for all, and by the death of his own body, purchasing the redemption of all mankind. The cross, then, that Christ bore was not for his own deserts, but was the cross that awaited us and was our due through our condemnation by the law. For as he was numbered among the dead, not for himself, but for our sakes, that we might find in him the author of everlasting life, subduing of himself the power of death, so also he took upon himself the cross that was our due, passing on himself the condemnation of the law, that the mouth of all lawlessness might henceforth be stopped, according to the saying of the psalmist, the sinless having suffered condemnation for the sin of all. And of great profit will the deed which Christ performed be to our souls. I mean as a type of true manliness in God's service. For in no other way can we triumphantly attain to perfection in all virtue, and perfect union with God, save by setting our love toward Him above the earthly life, and zealously waging battle for the truth, if occasion calls us so to do. Moreover, our Lord Jesus Christ says, Every man that doth not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And taking up the cross means, I think, nothing else than bidding farewell to the world for God's sake, and preferring, if the opportunity arise, the hope of future glory to life in the body. But our Lord Jesus Christ is not ashamed to bear the cross that is our due, and to suffer this indignity for love towards us. While we, poor wretches that we are, whose mother is the insensate earth beneath our feet, and who have been called into being out of nothing, sometimes do not even dare to touch the skirt of tribulation in God's service. But if we have anything to bear in the service of Christ, at once account the shame intolerable, and shrinking from the ridicule of our adversaries, and those who sit in the seat of the scornful as an accursed thing, and preferring to God's pleasure this paltry and ill-timed craving for reputation, 
falls sick of the disease of disdainful arrogance, which is the mother, so to say, of all evils, and so make ourselves subject to the charge. For thus is the servant above his lord, and the disciple above his master, and thinks and acts accordingly. Alas, for this grievous infirmity, which always in some strange shape lies athwart our path, and leads us astray from the pursuit of what is meet. Call to mind, too, how the inspired Peter could not endure Christ's prophecy when he foretold his sufferings upon the cross, for he said, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is betrayed under the hands of sinners, and they shall crucify him and kill him. The disciple, not yet understanding the mysterious ways of God's providence, God-loving and teachable as he was, was moved by his scruples to exclaim, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall never be unto thee. What answered Christ? Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art a stumbling-block unto me, for thou mindest not the things of God, but the things of men. But we may hence derive no small profit, for we shall know that when occasion calls us to exhibit courage in God's service, and we are compelled to endure conflicts that ensue for virtue's sake, yea, even if they who honor and love us best strive to hinder us from doing anything that may tend to establish virtue, alleging, it may be, our consequent dishonor among men, or from some worldly motive, we must not yield. For they, then, are in no wise unlike Satan, who loves and is ever wont to cast stumbling blocks in our path by diverse deceits, and sometimes by smooth words, so as to divert from the pursuit of what is meet, the man who is urged thereto by the spirit of piety. And methinks Christ meant something like this when he said, If, therefore, thy right eye causeth thee to stumble, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For that which does us injury is no longer our own, even though united to us by the bond of love and though its connection with us be but its natural desert. Two robbers were crucified together with Christ, and this was owing to the malice of the Jews, for, as though to emphasize the dishonor of our Saviour's death, they involved the just man in the same condemnation as the transgressors of the law. And we may take the condemned criminals who hung by Christ's side as symbolical of the two nations who were shortly about to be brought into close contact with him. I mean the children of Israel and the Gentiles. And why do we take condemned criminals as the type? Because the Jews were condemned by the law, for they were guilty of transgressing it. And the Greeks by their idolatry, for they worshipped the creature more than the Creator. And after another manner, those who are united with Christ are also crucified with him. For enduring, as it were, death to their old conversation in the flesh, they are reformed into a new life, according to the gospel. Yea, Paul said, And they that are of Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with the passions and the lust thereof. And again, speaking of himself in words applicable to all men, 
For I, through the law, died unto the law, that I might live unto God. I have been crucified with Christ, yet I live, and yet no longer I, but Christ liveth in me. And he exhorts also the Colossians. Wherefore, if ye died from the world, why do ye behave yourselves as though living in the world? For by becoming dead unto worldly conversation, we are brought to the rudiments of conduct and life in Christ. Therefore, the crucifixion of the two robbers, side by side with Christ, signifies in a manner to us, through the medium of that event, the juxtaposition of the two nations, dying together, as it were, with the Saviour Christ, by bidding farewell to worldly pleasures, and refusing any longer to live after the flesh, and preferring to live with their Lord, so far as may be, by fashioning their lives according to him, and consecrating them in his service. And the meaning of the figure is in no way affected by the fact that the men who hung by his side were malefactors. For we were by nature children of wrath, before we believed in Christ, and were all doomed to death, as we said before. End of Introduction, Part 3